Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. The F-35 still has a long way to go before it will be ready for combat. That was the parting message of Dr. Michael Gilmore, the now-retired Director of Operational Test and Evaluation, in his last annual report. The Joint Strike Fighter Program has already consumed more than $100 billion in nearly 25 years. Just to finish the basic development phase will require at least an extra $1 billion and yet two more years. Even with this massive investment of time and money, Dr. Gilmore told Congress, the Pentagon, and the public, the operational suitability of all variants continues to be less than desired by the services. Dr. Gilmore detailed a range of remaining and sometimes worsening problems with the program, including hundreds of critical performance deficiencies and maintenance problems. He also raised serious questions about whether the Air Force's F-35 Alpha can succeed in either air-to-air or air-to-ground missions, whether the Marine Corps' F-35 Bravo can conduct even rudimentary close air support, and whether the Navy's F-35C is suitable to operate from aircraft carriers. He found, in fact, that if used in combat, the F-35 aircraft will need support to locate and avoid modern threat ground radars, acquire targets, and engage formations of enemy fighter aircraft due to unresolved performance deficiencies and limited weapons carriage availability. In a public statement, the F-35 Joint Program Office attempted to dismiss the Gilmore report by asserting, All of the issues are well known to the JPO, the U.S. services, our international partners, and our industry. JPO's acknowledgement of the numerous issues are fine as far as it goes, but there's no indication that the office has any plan, including cost and schedule re-estimates, to fix those currently known problems without cutting corners. Nor, apparently, do they have a plan to cope with and fund the fixes for the myriad unknown problems that will be uncovered during the upcoming, much more rigorous, developmental and operational tests of the next four years. Such a plan is essential and should be driven by the pace at which problems are actually solved rather than by unrealistic pre-existing schedules. So what is it going to take to fix the numerous problems identified by Dr. Gilmore? And how do we best move forward with the most expensive weapons program in history, a program that has been unable to live up to its own very modest promises? Part 1. Electronics used to justify cost not delivering capabilities. The F-35 is being sold to the American people based in no small part on its mission systems, the vast array of sophisticated electronics on board the jet. A quick perusal of any of the hagiographic articles about the F-35 will find that they nearly always point to its capabilities to gather massive amounts of information. This information is supposed to come through its onboard sensors and the data links to outside network sources and then be merged by the F-35's computer systems to identify and display for the pilot the specific threat, target, and accompanying force picture, i.e. the situational awareness. This process is designed to allow the pilot to dominate the battle space. Based on the actual test performance of these systems during developmental testing, however, it appears the electronics actually interfere with the pilot's ability to survive and prevail. 
Overall, problems with the F-35 sensors, computers, and software, including creating false targets and reporting inaccurate locations, have been severe enough that test teams at Edwards Air Force Base have rated them red, meaning they are unable to perform the combat tasks expected of them. One system, the Electro-Optical Targeting System, or EOTS, was singled out by pilots as inferior in resolution and range to the systems currently being used on legacy aircraft. EOTS is one of the systems that is designed to help the F-35 detect and destroy enemy fighters from far enough away to make dogfighting a thing of the past. Mounted close to the nose of the aircraft, it incorporates a television camera, an infrared search and track system, and a laser rangefinder and designator. These sensors swivel under computer control to track targets over a wide field of regard and display imagery on the pilot's helmet visor display. But limitations of EOTs, including image degradation with humidity, force pilots to fly in closer to a target than they had to when using earlier systems just to get a clear enough picture to launch a missile or take a shot. The report says the, pr the problem is bad enough that F-35 pilots may need to fly in so close to acquire the target that they would then have to maneuver away to gain the distance needed for a guided weapon shot. Thus, the system's limitations can force an attacking F-35 to compromise surprise, allowing the enemy to maneuver to a first-shot opportunity. Surrendering the element of surprise and enabling an opponent to shoot first is what we want to force the enemy to do, not ourselves. Another often-touted feature that is supposed to give the F-35 superior situational awareness is the Distributed Aperture System, or DAS. The DAS is one of the primary sensors feeding the displays to the infamous $600,000 helmet system, and it is also failing to live up to the hype. The DAS sensors are six video cameras, or eyes, distributed around the fuselage of, of the F-35 that project onto the helmet visor the outside view in any direction the pilot wants to look, including downwards or to the rear. At the same time, the helmet visor displays the flight instruments and the target and threat symbols derived from the sensors and mission systems. But because the problems with excessive false targets, unstable jittered images, and information overload, pilots are turning off some of the sensors and computer inputs and relying instead on simplified displays or the more traditional instrument panel. Here again, the system is little better than those it's supposed to replace. Test pilots also had difficulty with the helmet during some of the important weapon delivery accuracy tests. Several of the pilots described the displays in the helmet as operationally unusable and potentially unsafe because of symbol clutter obscuring ground targets. While attempting to test fire short-range AIM-9 air-to-air missiles against targets, pilots reported that their view of the target was blocked by the symbols displayed in the helmet visors. Pilots also reported that the symbols were unstable while they were attempting to track targets. Then there is the matter of pilots actually seeing double due to false tracks. There was a problem with taking all of the information generated by the various onboard instruments and merging it into a coherent picture for the pilot, a process called sensor fusion. Pilots are reporting that the different instruments, like the plane's radar and the EOTs, are detecting the same target, but the computer compiling the information is displaying the single target as two. Pilots have tried to work around this problem by shutting off some of the sensors to make these superfluous targets disappear. This, DOT&E says, is 
unacceptable for combat and violates the basic principle of fusing contributions from multiple sensors into an accurate track and clear display to gain situational awareness and to identify and engage enemy targets. And as bad as the problem is in a single plane, it's much worse when several planes are attempting to share data across the network. The F-35 has a multifunction advanced data link that is designed to enable the plane to share information with the other F-35s in order to give all the pilots a common picture of the battle space. It does this by displaying or by taking all of the data generated by each plane and combining it into a single shared view of the world. But this system too is creating erroneous or split images of targets. Compounding the problem, the system is also sometimes dropping images of targets altogether, causing confusion inside the cockpits about what's there or not there. All of this means that the systems meant to give the pilots a better understanding of the world around them can do exactly the opposite. According to the report, these systems continue to degrade battle space awareness and increase pilot workload. Workarounds to these deficiencies are time-consuming for the pilot and detract from the efficient and effective mission execution. F-35 boosters say it's the network that matters. What actually matters is that the network isn't working. Part 2. The Fighter Jet That Can't Fight The F-35 was intended to be a multi-role aircraft from its inception. This latest report provides a clear picture of how it stacks up so far in its various roles, including in comparison to each aircraft it's supposed to replace, and the news is not encouraging. The F-35's shortcoming as an air-to-air fighter have already been well documented. At famous lost in mock aerial combat within visual range, where its radar stealth is of no advantage, to an F-16 in 2015. The F-16 is one of the aircraft the F-35 is supposed to replace. The F-35 lost repeatedly in air-to-air maneuvering, despite the fact that the test was rigged in its favor because the F-16 used was the heavier two-seater version and was further loaded down with heavy drag-inducing external fuel tanks to hinder its maneuverability. F-35 boosters argue that the plane's low radar signature will keep it out of visual range situations, but the history of air combat is that within visual range engagements cannot be avoided altogether. Missile failures, the effect of radar jamming, and other hard-to-predict factors tend to force visual range engagements time and again. This latest report confirms the F-35 is not as maneuverable as legacy fighters. All three variants display objectionable or unacceptable flying qualities at transonic speeds, where aerodynamic forces on the aircraft are rapidly changing. One such problem is known as wing drop, where the jet's wingtip suddenly dips during a tight turn, something that can cause the aircraft to spin and potentially crash. Transonic speeds, just below the sound barrier, are the most critical spot in the flight envelope for a fighter plane. These are the speeds where, historically, the majority of aerial combat takes place. And it is at these speeds where the F-35 needs to be the most nimble to be an effective fighter. The program has attempted to fix the maneuverability performance problems by making changes to the F-35's flight software rather than by redesigning the actual flight surfaces that are the cause of the problems. The software, called Control Laws, translates the pilot's stick commands into behavior by the aircraft. One would expect that certain force by the pilot on the stick would result in an equivalent response by the plane. Because of the software changes, that's sometimes not the case. 
For example, if a pilot makes a sharp stick move to turn the plane, the control loss software now results in a gentler turn to prevent problems such as and including wing drop. F-35 apologists try to dismiss such issues by claiming that the F-35 was never intended for close-in aerial dogfighting, a claim belied by the Air Force's insistence that the jet be equipped with a short-range air-to-air gun. As an air-to-air fighter, the F-35's combat capability is extremely limited because at the moment, the software version only enables it to employ two missiles, and they have to be the radar-guided advanced medium-range air-to-air missiles, or AMRAMs. In the future, it will carry no more than four if it wants to retain its stealth characteristic. The F-35's capability as an air-to-air fighter is currently further limited because the AMRAM is not optimized for close visual range combat. Eventually, upgraded software versions will allow the plane to carry missiles other than AMRAMs, but not anytime soon. This means that any fight the F-35 gets into had better be short, because it will very quickly run out of ammunition. Its gun would be available in close-in fighting as well, but it's not currently working because the software needed to effectively use it in combat hasn't been completed. The cannon in the F-35 Alpha sits behind a small door on the side of the aircraft that opens quickly an instant before the cannon is fired, a characteristic intended to keep the aircraft stealthy. Test flights have shown that this door catches the air flowing across the surface of the aircraft, pulling the F-35's nose off the aim point, resulting in errors that exceed accuracy specifications. Engineers are working on yet more changes to the F-35's control laws to correct for the door-induced error. Making these changes and performing the subsequent regression retesting to confirm the effectiveness of the changes have delayed the actual gun accuracy tests. Until these tests occur, no one can know whether the F-35 Alpha's cannon can actually hit a target. The F-35B and F-35C will both use an externally mounted gun pod rather than an internal version like the Air Force model. Because of differences in the shape of the fuselage of the two models, the Marine Corps and Navy will use different model gun pods. Both have been test fired on the ground, but the flight test to see what effect the pods have on the jet's aerodynamics are only just now beginning. DOT&E has warned that, as happened with the gun door on the F-35 Alpha, unexpected flight control problems are likely to be discovered. The fixes to these will have to be devised and then tested as well. Only then will the program be able to begin the fuller in-flight accuracy testing, which is necessary to determine whether the gun pod is accurate. Developmental testing delays and the process of fixing the problems that testing will likely uncover are severe enough that the program may not have an effective gun for initial operational test and evaluation. This could not only further delay scheduled testing, but also, and more importantly, prevent the aircraft from reaching the warfighter anytime soon. Part 3. Interdiction Bomber Shortfalls There are several major reasons F-35s will have extremely limited interdiction usefulness. The Air Force's and Marine Corps' declaration of initial operational capability notwithstanding. For instance, defense companies in Europe, Russia, China, and even Iran have been hard at work for years developing and producing systems to defeat stealth aircraft. And they have had some success. We saw this clearly in 1999 when a Serbian missile unit shot down an F-117 stealth fighter with an obsolete Soviet-era SA-3 surface-to-air missile, or SAM, a system first fielded in 1961. Serbian air defense crews discovered they could detect the stealth aircraft by using their missile battery's long-wave search radar. 
Then, using spotters and the missile zone guidance radars, the Serbian forces were able to track, target, and kill one stealthy F-117. And to show that it was no fluke, the Serbian SAMs hit and damaged another F-117 so badly and never flew in the Kosovo air war again. Unaffected by the special shapes and coatings of modern stealth aircraft, these search radars easily detect today's stealth airplanes, including the F-35. Since World War II, the Russians have never stopped building such radars and are now selling modern, highly mobile, truck-mounted digital long-wave radars on the open market for prices as low as $10 million. The, the Chinese and the Iranians have followed suit by developing similar radar systems. An even simpler system that is even harder to counter than a long-wave search radar is a passive detection system that detects and tracks the radio frequency signals emitted by an aircraft, such as its radar signals, UHF and VHF radio signals, identification friend or foe, and even data link signals like Link-16. A good example of a modern passive detection system is the Vera-NG, a check system being sold internationally that uses three or more receiving antennas spaced well apart to uh, detect and track and identify the radio frequency signals emitted by fighters and bombers. The system's central analysis module calculates the time difference of the signals, reaching the receivers to identify, locate, and track up to 200 aircraft transmitting radar signals. The Vera-NG is only one of many types of passive detection systems used throughout the world. The Russians, Chinese, and others produce passive detection systems as well, and these have been widely fielded for several years. The beauty of a passive detection system, from the perspective of an adversary employing one, is that radar stealth is irrelevant to its ability to detect and track aircraft. If the aircraft has to use its radar, radios, data links, or navigation systems to accomplish its mission, the passive detection system stands a good chance of being able to detect, track, and identify it by those emissions. Every aircraft in the world is susceptible to passive detection systems, stealth and non-stealth alike, and the F-35 is no exception. The F-35's main air-to-air -air weapon, the AIM-120, is a beyond-visual-range radar missile. As a result, the F-35 has to use a large radar transmitting high-power signals in order to detect airborne targets and then guide the missile to them. Likewise, the aircraft has to employ high-powered ground mapping radar signals to find ground targets at long range. Moreover, if the plane systems have to communicate with other aircraft in the formation or with off-board supporting aircraft like AWACS, it has to use its radios and data links. The F-35 is thus likely susceptible to detection by passive tracking systems. Several of these passive detection systems are significantly less expensive than search radars, and they are virtually undetectable electronically. The DOTNE report also lists several major reasons for the F-35's limited interdiction usefulness. One such reason is that the F-35's Block 2B, the Marine Corps, and Block 3i, Air Force software, prevents it from detecting many threats and targets while severely limiting the kind of weapons it can carry. For example, the F-35 can currently only carry a few models of large guided direct attack bombs. None of these can be launched from a distance like a power-guided missile. Rather, they fall on a ballistic trajectory from the aircraft to the target, which means they can only be released at relatively short ranges in view of the target. For now, F-35s will be forced to fly much closer to engage ground targets, and depending on the threat level of enemy air defenses and acceptable mission risk, it may be limited to engaging ground targets that are defended by only short-range air defenses or by none at all. 
The small number of weapons types the F-35 can carry also limits its flexibility in combat. The current software can only support one kind of a bomb at a time, which Diotini says is only useful when attacking one or two similar targets. So, for example, when a flight of F-35s departs loaded with bombs designed to destroy surface targets, they wouldn't be able to also destroy any hardened or bunker targets because they wouldn't have the heavier bombs required. The F-35 is projected to carry a large, no- or large variety of weapons as more software, bomb racks, and testing validate these are developed. But we will not know until 2021 which of these weapons are actually combat suitable. Moreover, in order to carry something other than two large guided bombs, it will have to use external weapons and racks, significantly reducing the plane's already disappointing range and maneuverability, and of course, more or less eliminating stealth. The ability to penetrate heavily defended airspace to destroy fixed targets deep in enemy territory is an often cited justification for the F-35. Of course, the F-35's limited range, less than legacy F-16s, means that it is unlikely to be able to perform what the Air Force likes to call deep strikes well inside the homeland of large nations such as Russia and China. The 2016 DOTNE report describes some official foot dragging that has delayed putting the F-35's penetrating ability to the test. For instance, the program is only now starting to receive the critical ground radar simulator equipment, which mimic enemy radar systems that are needed to conduct robust testing of the F-35's effectiveness in highly contested near-peer scenarios. It's only receiving that equipment because it was sought and procured by DOT&E when it became clear that the services in the JSF program office were not going to pursue a test infrastructure adequate for replicating the near-peer threats the F-35 is expected to be able to counter. Deliveries of this equipment have begun but will not be completed until early 2018. The JPO has not planned or budgeted for developmental flight testing against it. The military does developmental and operational testing of stealth aircraft at the Western Test Range at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. The tests are conducted against the ground radar simulator equipment and simulated surface-to-air missile launchers. Aircraft being tested fly over these arrays to see if the aircraft's onboard sensors, in particular its electronic warfare systems and ground mapping radar, combined with offboard intelligence provided via data links, can detect the threats and respond appropriately, such as by warning the pilots, jamming the signals, or firing defensive suppression missiles. The problem is a complicated one because the radar signals that reveal the presence of a SAM, for instance, thereby allowing the aircraft to either target the SAM or or avoid it, are not necessarily distinctive and often closely resemble the signals of radars that pose no immediate threat to the aircraft. The F-35 can't carry enough weapons to bomb everything. Its sensors and sensor fusion system must be able to tell the difference between enemy SAM radars that pose a genuine threat and the many innocuous radars that may be within range of detection. General purpose air surveillance radars, short range, low altitude air defense radars targeting weapons, and not aircraft, and even nearby civilian air traffic control and weather radar systems. Equally crippling, until the ground radar simulator equipment is in place, the F-35 program will be unable to properly develop, validate, and update the F-35's mission-critical onboard software files, called Mission Data Loads, or MDLs. MDLs are huge files specifying all targets and threat locations together with their individual electronic and or infrared signatures and all relevant mapping data. 
Without accurate up-to-date MDLs, the F-35 cannot find targets or evade encounter threats, nor can it carry out the networking and sensor fusion functions that are said to be its primary strengths. The F-35 cannot go to war without its MDLs. The MDLs also need to be updated continuously with information concerning such things as targets, uh, threats, and signals that is gathered on every F-35 mission. F-35 pilots can only be sure the MDLs they need to survive work properly after they have been tested over ranges equipped with the necessary ground radar simulator equipment. New and complete MDLs must be created for each theater or conflict zone by a central reprogramming laboratory using massive data inputs from the relevant combat command. F-35s operating out of England would have different files from F-35s based in Japan, for example. Only one such reprogramming lab exists today, and due to JPO mismanagement, it has only recently been scheduled to receive necessary upgrades to produce a validated MDL. It takes the lab 15 months to produce a completed MDL. If F-35s are suddenly needed in a new, unanticipated theater of operations, those F-35s will not be able to fly combat missions for at least 15 months. Because the full range of necessary ground radar simulator equipment for the reprogramming lab is not yet in place, DOT&E states that the earliest the reprogramming lab will be able to produce validated MDLs just for IOT&E will be June 2018. That is nearly a year after the planned IOT&E start date in August 2017, and two years after the Marines declared the F-35B initially operationally capable. DOT&E further states that F-35 MDLs suitable for combat will not be tested and optimized to ensure the F-35 will be capable of detecting, locating, and identifying modern fielded threats until 2020. Part 4. The F-35 is unlikely to provide much help to troops on the ground. The F-35 has plenty of shortfalls performing air-to-ground interdiction missions well away from the immediate battlefield but it is even worse in its other intended air-to-ground role, directly in support of engaged troops, otherwise known as close air support. DOT&E concluded that the F-35 in its current configuration does not yet demonstrate cast capabilities equivalent to those of fourth-generation aircraft. This statement is particularly disturbing in light of the Air Force Chief's recent statements that the service intends to renew its efforts to cancel the close air support proven A-10 in 2021. Close air support is the other major mission where a lack of effective cannon will significantly limit the F-35's combat usefulness. An effective cannon is essential for many close air support missions where any size bomb, guided or unguided, would pose a danger to friendly troops on the ground or where there are concerns about collateral damage, such as in urban environments. The cannon is even more crucial when our troops are being ambushed or overrun by enemies only meters away, in danger-close situations where only pinpoint effects delivered by the most highly accurate fire can help our side and kill or disperse the enemy. Ground commanders interviewed as part of a recent RAND study said they prefer the A-10's cannon fire, even the guided munitions, because 80% of the cannon rounds fired hit within a 20-foot radius of the aiming point, providing exactly the kind of precision that danger-close situations absolutely require. Cannons are also most useful for hitting moving targets, because a cannon burst can lead the target in anticipation of movement. None of the three F-35 models in the current fleet can use cannons in combat. 
In fact, none of them are even close to completing their developmental flight tests, much less their operational suitability tests for airframe safety, accuracy, and target lethality. Even worse, based on preliminary test experience, it appears that the severe inaccuracy of the helmet-mounted gun sight on all three F-35 versions that makes the cannon ineffective in air-to-air -air combat will also make it ineffective in close air support and that the helmet's accuracy problems may be technically inherent and incurable. Note that the cannon accuracy requirements for close air support are considerably more stringent than for air combat. When shooting in close proximity to friendly troops, even minor accuracy problems can have tragic consequences. As mentioned before, the gun pods for the Marines F-35B and the Navy's F-35C will likely add another source of inaccuracy, also possibly incurable, and remain untested for close air support. The combat suitability of F-35 cannons for close air support will not be known until the end of Block 3F IOT&E, which is unlikely before 2021. Failure to complete these close air support tests realistically, a distinct possibility given JPO mismanagement and delaying of test resources, will certainly jeopardize the lives of American troops. In addition to the critical cannon inaccuracy problems, the air-inducing chaos of symbol cl clutter in the pilot's helmet display is particularly dangerous in the close air support role. DOT&E says the current system is operationally unusable and potentially unsafe to complete the planned test due to a combination of symbol clutter obscuring the target, difficulty reading key information, and PIPR or aimpoint stability. Even when the symbol being displayed by the helmet do not obscure the pilot's ability to see the target, the F-35's canopy might. The jet's canopy is a thick acrylic material with a low observable coating to preserve stealth. This makes the canopy less transparent and according to the DOT&E, appears to be distorting the pilot's view. Further limiting the cannon's effectiveness in each version of the F-35 is the number of 25mm rounds it carries. 182 for the F-35A and 220 for the B and C. This is grossly deficient for close air support, especially com when compared to the over 1,130 millimeter shells carried by the A-10. While the A-10 has enough cannon rounds for between 10 and 20 attack passes, any variant of the F-35 will only have enough for two, maybe four passes. Even more limiting in the effective use of any CAS weapon, cannon or other, is the F-35's inability to fly low and slow enough to find typical hard-to-see close air support targets and safety, safely identify them as enemy or friendly, even when cued by ground or air observers. Due to its small overloaded wings, the F-35 cannot maneuver adequately at the slow speeds that searching for concealed and camouflage targets requires. And being completely unarmored and highly flammable, it would suffer catastrophic loss from just the small rifle and light machine gun hits inevitable at the low altitudes and slow speeds required. In sharp contrast, the A-10 was specifically designed for excellent low and slow maneuverability, and by design, has unprecedented survivability against those guns and even against shoulder-fired missiles. Air Force officials have often argued that the lack of an effective gun or inability to maneuver low and slow won't matter in future wars because the Air Force intends to conduct close air support differently, that is, at high altitudes using smaller precision munitions. But the F-35 will not be cleared to carry those kind of weapons for at least five years. 
In the meantime, the F-35 can only carry two guided bombs right now, and those are 500 pounds or larger. None of those models are usable in proximity to friendly troops. According to the military's risk estimate table, a, at 250 meters or 820 feet, a 500-pound bomb has a 10% chance of incapacitating friendly troops. This means that within that bubble, the enemy can maneuver free from close air support fires. A 250-pound small diameter bomb is now in low-rate production and cleared for use on the F-15E, but even that, though, is much too large to be used near friendly troops in danger-close firefights, and the software and bomb racks necessary to employ it on the F-35 will not be available and cleared for combat until 2021 at the earliest. Close air support is more than just aircraft simply dropping bombs on targets. To be truly effective, close air support missions require detailed tactical coordination between the pilots and the troops fighting on the ground. For decades, this has been done effectively through radio communication, and in recent years, current operational aircraft have been upgraded with digital communication links for voice and data over network systems called Variable Message Format in Link 16. In flight tests, the F-35's digital data links have experienced significant difficulties, including drop messages or information being transmitted in the wrong format. This has forced pilots and ground controllers to work around the systems by repeating the information by voice over the radio. In a close firefight, when seconds count, this is a dangerous delay the troops can ill afford. F-35 defenders are always quick to point to the allegedly lethal capabilities of near-peer adversary air defense systems as justification for the necessity of using F-35s in close air support as well as in interdiction bombing. Introducing a sounder tactical historical perspective, Air Force Colonel Mike Petruca points out that the scenario of flying close air support missions over an area of heavy air defense threats is unlikely at best. The cumbersome, slow-moving, and logistics-intensive high-threat missile systems are unlikely to be dragged along by a near-peer enemy conducting modern mobile warfare. Our close-support pilots are much more likely to face light and mobile air defenses, such as machine guns, light anti-aircraft guns, and man-carrying heat-seeking missiles, just as they faced during World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, and the wars of the past 15 years. In announcing F-35 IOC, the Marines, who used to prize close air support as part of the unique Marine aviation heritage, and the Air Force apparently deemed these uh, F-35 close air support limitations acceptable. But it is shameful to see close air support treated as an afterthought tacked on to the F-35 program. To provide adequate close air support, the taxpayer's money would be far better spent maintaining the battle-proven A-10 until a significantly more effective and even more affordable follow-on is tested and fielded. Part 5. The Navy's F-35 is unsuitable for carrier operations. One of the most important characteristics the Navy's variant of the F-35 must have is that it has to be able to operate from aircraft carriers. Otherwise, what is the point of designing a specialized naval version of the plane? But the Navy's own pilots say the F-35C doesn't work with the ships. Developmental testing revealed that a severe amount of jerking during catapult launches, termed excessive vertical oscillations, quote, make the F-35C operationally unsuitable for carrier operations, according to fleet pilots who conducted training aboard USS George Washington during the latest set of ship trials. Aircraft taking off from the confined decks of carriers require a major boost to reach the necessary speed to achieve lift and takeoff, 
which is accomplished with a catapult set into the flight deck. Before the jets are launched, the pilots increase the engine thrust, and to keep the jets from rolling off the front of the ship before launch, they are held down with holdback bars. The force of the thrust compresses the gear strut as it is being held down. And when the holdback bar is released the jet and the jet is launched, the F-35C strut is unloaded, causing the nose to bounce up and down, jarring the pilot according to a Navy report that was leaked to Inside Defense in January 2017. The problem is dangerous to the pilot. The fancy F-35's helmet is unusually heavy, uh, currently weighing in at 5.1 pounds. And when that's combined with the forces generated during a catapult launch, the extra weight slams the pilot's head back and forth. In 70% of the F-35 catapult launches, pilots report moderate to severe pain in their heads and necks. The launch also impacts the alignment of the helmet. Pilots reported difficulty reading critical information inside the helmet, and they have to readjust it after getting into the air. The pilots say this is unsafe as it happens during one of the most critical phases of any flight. Pilots try to counter the oscillations by cinching down their, their body harnesses tighter, but this creates a new problem by making it harder to reach emergency switches and the ejection handles in the event of a problem. The F-35 program manager, uh, Lieutenant General Christopher Bogdan, has said he will attempt a short-term tweak to the F-35C's nose gear strut to fix the problem, but a longer-term fix may actually be required, such as redesign of the entire front landing gear assembly. This is unlikely to begin until 2019, the same year the Navy has said it intends to declare the F-35C ready for combat. By that time, the Navy will likely have 36 F-35Cs in the fleet, each of which would then need to have the front landing gear replaced at a yet-to-be-determined cost. The F-35C's problems aren't limited to the beginning of flight. Just as a jet needs help taking off from a carrier, it also needs help stopping during the landing. This is accomplished by cables strung across the flight deck. When a jet comes in for a landing, a hook on the aircraft catches one of the cables, which uses a hydraulic engine inside the ship to absorb the energy and bring the jet to a halt. The test teams have found that the hook point on the F-35C's arresting gear is wearing out three times faster than it is supposed to. Though it is supposed to last a minimum of 15 landings, the longest a hook point has lasted so far in testing is five. The program is reportedly considering redesigning the arresting gear to be more robust. Another structural issue yet to be resolved on the F-35C involves the wings. During flight tests, engineers discovered the ends of the wings were not strong enough to support the weight of the AIM-9X short-range air-to-air missile. The F-35C's wings fold at the ends to save space in the crowded confines of the deck and hangars on aircraft carriers. When the missiles are carried past the wing folds, the weight exceeds the structural limits when the plane maneuvers hard and during landings. According to DOT&E, until the problem is corrected, the F-35C will have a restricted flight envelope for missile carriage and employment, which will be detrimental to maneuvering and close-in engagements. It's more detrimental even than the F-35's other inherent maneuvering limitations. The problem is bad enough that Lieutenant General Bogdan has admitted the F-35C will need an entirely redesigned outer wing. Launching and recovering planes is only one part of the challenge for naval aviation. Maintenance crews also have to be able to keep the jets flightworthy while at sea. One of the most critical maintenance functions that crews have to be able to perform is an engine removal and installation, or R&I. 
Cruz performed the first RNI proof of concept demonstration aboard the USS George Washington in August of 2016. It took the crew 55 hours to complete the engine swap, far longer than it takes to perform the same action on a legacy aircraft. The engine on an F-A-18, for instance, can be replaced in six to eight hours. DOT&E noted the crews took its time performing all the necessary steps for safety purposes and point out that future iterations will likely be a little faster as crews gain more experience with the F-35. That said, the crew had full use of the entire hangar base space, something they wouldn't have with an air wing embarked on the ship. This likely sped up the process during this demonstration. Replacing the engine in the F-35 is more complicated than in an F-18. Crews must remove several more skin panels and a large structural piece called the tailhook trestle in order to remove the engine, thus requiring more space in the maintenance hangar. These parts and all the tubes and wires associated with them must be stored properly to prevent damage, also taking up extra space. The maintenance crews must perform this process with a full air wing present in order to know whether the system is operationally suitable and the process must become significantly more efficient to generate the sortie rate needed for combat. Another problem uncovered during the trials in the George Washington involved the transmission of the massive data files the F-35C's computers produce. The F-35 program relies on the Autonomic Logistics Information System, or ALICE, the enormous and complex computer system all F-35s use for mission planning, maintenance diagnosis, maintenance scheduling, parts ordering, and more. To work properly, the system has to move large volumes of data across the network on and off the ship. During the Washington trials, the crew had to transmit a moderately sized 200 megabyte ALICE file over the ship's satellite network. It took two days. Bandwidth limitations and spotty connectivity had drastically impeded the transmission of the data. Many such transmissions, and even larger ones, will be required to support an entire air wing. Additionally, the fleet often operates in periods of emissions control, or radio silence, to avoid giving away its position to the enemy, further bottlenecking the transfer of the data necessary to keep the F-35 flying. The George Washington trials generated plenty of fawning press coverage, though, and publicly at least, the Navy claimed success. However, there is evidence that the Navy is not too excited with the program because of the kind of problems discussed above and, of course, the cost. The service has been slow to purchase the F-35Cs. While the Air Force is set to buy 44 new F-35s in 2017, the Navy will only buy two. The Navy also requested 14 additional F-18s in its 2017 unfunded priorities wish list, but only two more F-35Cs. Moreover, this is the only variant that the services have not rushed to prematurely declare combat ready. Some Pentagon leaders have said the Navy variant is the only one threatened by a review that was ordered by the Trump administration and that Secretary of Defense James Mattis is currently conducting. This may prove to be one part of the program where a viable alternative to the F-35 is sought. Part 6. The price tag is the only stealthy thing about the F-35. Much has been said since the election about further F-35 purchases and affordability. President Trump questioned the program's value in a series of tweets before the inauguration, but hopes that the program would be dramatically altered were dashed when he declared he had convinced Lockheed Martin to shave $600 million from the price of the latest batch of F-35s. Lockheed Martin and their partners within the JPO had already stated the price would be lower, largely due to improved efficiencies in manufacturing. 
On the surface, this seems like a great development for the American taxpayers, but any money saved now will end up costing far more in the future because we are buying a bunch of untested prototypes that will require extensive and expensive retrofits later. And this problem will only be compounded if Lockheed Martin and the Joint Program Office get their way and Congress approves a three-year block buy of more than 400 F-35s before the program completes the testing and evaluation process. The prices quoted in the press are usually based on the cost of an Air Force conventional takeoff variant, the F-35A, the least expensive of the three variants. In addition, that cost figure is only an estimate of future costs, one that assumes everything will proceed perfectly for the F-35 from here on out, which is unlikely as the program enters its more, most technologically challenging test phase. As this latest dot report shows, the program has a long way to go before the F-35 will be ready for combat. The Joint Program Office recently claimed that the price for an F-35A went below $100 million each in the FY 2016 contract. Yet, in its fiscal year 2016 legislation, Congress appropriated $119.6 million per F-35A. Even this amount doesn't tell the whole story. It only covers the procurement cost, not what it will cost to bring F-35As up to the latest approved configuration, nor the additional military construction costs to house and operate F-35As. And of course, the $119.6 million price tag does not include any of the research and development costs to develop and test the F-35A. The 2016 production-only cost for the Marine Corps' F-35B and the Navy's F-35C is $166.4 million and $185.2 million per plane, respectively. First, they don't include how much it will cost to fix design flaws discovered in recent, current, and future testing, a not insubstantial amount of money. Nor do they include the cost of planned modernization efforts, such as for Block 4 of the aircraft, which will be incorporated into all F-35As in the future. The Government Accountability Office estimates the program will spend at least $3 billion on modernization efforts in the next six years. For example, modifications to fix just some of the problems identified up to now cost $426.7 million, according to the GAO. Each of these aircraft have already had other modifications, and they will have more in the future. The Air Force has already acknowledged it must retrofit all 108 of the F-35As delivered to it and in the operational fleet. These costs will continue to grow as known problems are fixed and new ones are discovered, and they are an integral part of the cost per airplane. As the program moves out of the easy part of testing, the developmental or laboratory testing, and into the critical combat or operational testing period in the next few years, even more problems will be uncovered. A good example occurred in, in late 2016 when engineers discovered debris inside the fuel tanks of an F-35. Upon closer inspection, they found that the insulation wrapped around coolant lines had disintegrated because a subcontractor failed to use the proper sealant. And, when the GAO estimated it would cost $426.7 million to fix some of the known problems in the F-35As already in the depot, the coolant line insulation problem had not yet been discovered. Fixes to this and other problems will all have to be devised, tested, and implemented throughout the fleet of aircraft already produced and purchased. Second, the incomplete unit cost used by the JPO, Lockheed Martin, and the Pentagon in general 
their so-called flyaway costs, do not include the purchase of support equipment, such as tools, computers for the ALICE system, simulators for training, initial spare parts, and more that are needed to enable the F-35A fleet to operate. Quite literally, the DOD's flyaway cost does not buy a system capable of flight operations. The Pentagon has already committed to purchasing 346 F-35 since the program entered into what the Department of Defense euphemistically calls low-rate initial production. The 798 jets the services would have at the end of block of a block buy of about 450 from 2018 to 2021 would be nearly 33% of the total procurement, all before the program completes initial operational testing and has discovered what works as intended and what doesn't. It is important to note that the real problem discovery process will only begin when operational testing starts in 2019, as scheduled, or more likely in 2020 or 2021 when operational representative aircraft are actually ready to be tested. The 108 aircraft the Air Force has begun to modify are only the tip of the iceberg, and that number does not include the hundreds of Marine Corps and Navy aircraft to be similarly modified. The proposed block buy poses numerous additional questions. Perhaps the most relevant question of all asked by Dr. Gilmore is, would the block buy be consistent with a fly-before-you-buy approach to acquisition advocated by the administration, as well as with the rationale for the operational testing requirements specified in Title 10 U.S. Code, or would it be considered a full-rate decision before IOT&E is completed and reported to Congress, not consistent with the law? See, federal law allows multiple-year contracts to purchase government property so long as certain criteria have been met. Congress typically authorizes most weapons buying programs on a year-to-year basis uh, to ensure proper oversight of the program and to maintain incentives for the contractor to satisfactorily perform. According to Title 10 USC Section 2306B, for a program to be eligible for multi-year procurement, the contract must promote national security, should result in substantial savings, have little chance of being reduced, and have a stable design. The F-35 seems to be failing at at least two of the first three and is most certainly failing the fourth. An essential part of the question about the F-35's cost is whether it makes sense to buy a large block of aircraft and worry about the cost to fix the yet-to-be-discovered problems later. It's certainly, it is certainly a good way to add to the cost but hide it in the interim. And there still remains the cost of actually operating the F-35 fleet. The Department of Defense estimated that all training and operations over the 50-year life of the program, it's assuming a 30-year life for each aircraft, will be $1 trillion, making the cost to buy and operate the F-35 at least $1.4 trillion. The cost just to operate the F-35 is so high because the aircraft is so complex compared to other aircraft. Based on the Air Force's own numbers, in FY 2016, each F-35 flew an average of 163 hours at $44,026 per flying hour. For comparison purposes, in the same year, each F-16 in the fleet flew an average of 258 hours at $20,398 per flying hour. A-10s flew 358 hours on average at $17,227 per flying hour. While these hours have never been independently audited, and it is important to know if they are complete, the available data indicates that the F-35 is more than twice as expensive to fly as the aircraft it is designed to replace. 
One of the more significant ways the Pentagon is hiding the true cost of the F-35 is that it has put off until Block 4 the development and delivery of many key capabilities that should have been delivered in Block 3. Currently planned, but not included in the official cost estimate of the F-35, or even as a complete separate acquisition program, is a four-part Block 4 upgrade costing at least $3 billion, according to the Government Accountability Office. In addition, DOT&E reports that there are... 17 documented failures to meet specified requirements for which the program acknowledges and intends to seek contract specification changes in order to close out SDD, or System Development and Demonstration. That means there are 17 key combat capabilities the F-35 program can't yet deliver and that the program office is attempting to give Lockheed Martin a pass on delivery until later in the advanced development process. Although no one has publicly stated which 17 combat capabilities won't be included now, they were all functions the F-35 was supposed to have, and for which the American people are paying full price now. So, we will be paying more money in the future to upgrade F-35s purchased now, so they can perform functions we've already paid for. Part 7. The Way Ahead the DOT&E's latest report is yet more proof that the F-35 program will continue to be a massive drain on time and resources for years to come, and will provide our armed forces with a second-rate combat aircraft, less able to perform its missions than the legacy aircraft it is meant to replace. The men and women who take it to the skies to defend the nation deserve something better. Despite the conventional wisdom in Washington, the services do not have to be stuck with the F-35. Other options do exist. To fill the near-term hole in our air-to-air -air forces, start a program to refurbish and upgrade all available F-16As and F-18s with life-extended airframes and much higher thrust engines. Upgrade their electronic systems with more capable off-the-shelf electronic systems. And this will give us fighters that are significantly more effective in air-to-air -air combat than either the later F-16s and F-18 models or the F-35. Add airframes from the boneyard if needed to augment the force. Most importantly, bring pilot training hours up to the minimum acceptable level of 30 hours per month, in part with money saved by not purchasing underdeveloped F-35s now. To fill the far more serious near-term near hole in close air support forces, complete the re-winging of the 100 A-10s the Air Force has refused to re-wing, and then expand the inadequate existing force of only 272 A-10s by refurbishing and re-winging every available A-10 in the Boneyard to A-10C standards. We should also immediately undertake three new competitive prototype fly-off programs to design and build a more lethal and more survivable close air support plane to replace the A-10 and to design and build two different air-to-air -air fighters that are smaller and more combat effective than F-16s, F-22s, and F-18s. Test them against all competent enemies equipped with radar missiles and stealth countermeasures. These programs should follow the model of the lightweight fighter and AX programs in the 1970s, particularly in regard to live-fire realistic scenario competitive fly-off tests. These programs resulted in the F-16 and A-10, two indisputably highly effective aircraft that were each less expensive than the preferred Pentagon alternatives at the time, and they became operational after testing in less than 10 years, not more than 25. And finally, at an absolute minimum, the F-35 test program already in place that both the JPO and Dr. Gilmore agreed to must be executed to understand, before any further production, exactly what this aircraft can and cannot do competently. 
That means suspending further F-35 production until those tests are complete and honestly reported to the Secretary of Defense, the President, and Congress. The F-35 program has reached a crucial decision point. Bold action is required now to salvage something from the national disaster that is the Joint Strike Fighter program. The administration should continue the review of the F-35 program, but officials should not just talk to the generals and executives as they have no incentive to tell the hard truth because they have a vested financial interest in making sure the program survives regardless of capability. As this report shows, they are not telling the whole story. There are many more people lower down the food chain with other points of view. They are the ones possessing the real story. And as the above suggestions show, there are still options. It is not too late to make significant changes to the program, as its defenders like to claim. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about the F-35 program, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.